The text this evening is James 3. We've got a lot of verses, 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Repeated that, that verse. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for bringing us here this evening. As we now turn to your word, we ask that you'd speak to us and train us in the difficult art of taming our tongues. Please guide my words now and bless the preaching of your word. And may you now glorify your son, in whose name we pray, and amen. Amen. I'm going to grab my water. Mm-hmm. Well, the point of my message this evening is rather elementary. It's the kind of thing that we might say to a five or six-year-old who's just come home after his first encounter with what we might call playground talk. Now, I know that none of you Christian kids uh, (laughs) encountered such a thing, but us public schoolers uh, encountered such a thing as playground talk, right? Little Johnny comes home from school one day with a brand new repertoire of all these new swear words and profanities, spouting them off to his baby sister, hurling insults at his mom. And now what might a loving father say to young Johnny? Son, tame your tongue. Okay, and such exhortations from a loving father that we might have received early in life when we were just five or six years old, these kinds of exhortations don't have an expiration date. Okay? We need to hear them at all times, in all places, at all ages. There never comes a time when you can start disregarding 
such elementary or basic exhortations such as this. All of us, from a child first learning to talk to a college student now living with roommates for the first time, to a preacher speaking at a college ministry event, all the way up to the wisest, most seasoned pastor or politician or mother. All of us need to learn to tame our tongues, which gets at an important aspect of my message this evening. The idea of taming your tongue is not merely an exhortation to just stop saying, quote-unquote, bad words, okay? Not that there's anything such as bad words, but that's really another talk. Um, If that's all it took, okay, we'll talk about that later. If that's all it took to tame your tongue, if that's all James is really telling us here in this passage, I think that most of us probably have this under control by now, I hope at least. I didn't hear anyone swearing like a sailor on their way in this this evening. So uh, the more challenging reality is that there is both a negative aspect and a positive aspect to taming your tongue. I don't mean a bad aspect and a good aspect, but a negative sort of don't do this or stop doing that thing and a positive do, do this instead. Start saying these things. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's a a negative command. Stop letting the corrupting thing come out of your mouth. But such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, the positive. Do this instead. Taming your tongue looks like learning to stop saying the corrupting things and learning instead to say the good thing. But as Paul points out here, it's not just the good thing, but the right thing at the right time. Time, okay? Paul says that we are to speak as fits the occasion. Okay, so there's an art form here. It's not just shotgun blessings and encouragements all the time. There's discernment involved. There's real discernment involved. There's wisdom involved. There's a target that we're trying to hit that you can go too high or too low. You can uh, aim for the sides or, uh, or you can hit the bullseye. Okay, that's what we're aiming at. Taming your tongue is the art of learning to say the right thing at the right time for the glory of God and for building up the brethren. That's how I would really define what we're after this evening. Uh, That's how I would define taming the tongue. And there's a couple questions uh, related to this that I think James answers for us in this text. And these are really the questions that I'm going to seek to answer. There's, There's really only two. Uh, So hopefully we're not here all night. Uh, (laughs) Number one, why is it so important to tame your tongue? Or in other words, what are the dangers of not doing this? Or what are the benefits of doing this? Why should we learn to tame our tongues? Why is it so important? And number two, how do you tame your tongue? That's that's really the two questions that I'm seeking to answer tonight. And then we'll kind of finish off with some uh, points of application. So why is it so important to tame your tongue? We have to understand that here in chapter 3, James is primarily uh, thinking of the role of teachers. Okay, we get this from verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. Why, we might ask. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a higher level of judgment, in other words, reserved through for those who would attempt to teach in the church, for those who would attempt to teach the doctrines of God. And so as someone who's attempting to 
teach the doctrines of God. This is something that I really needed to uh, preach to myself first. Uh, But this passage is relevant for all of us because, as Paul tells Timothy, teachers or pastors or leaders are supposed to set an example for the rest of the church in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's 1 Timothy 4.12. So we're to read this passage here as something that's written for all of us. Okay? No, none of us can leave this room thinking that this passage doesn't apply to me. Okay? This applies to you. The ideal that James is setting before us is something that we should all seek to attain. And the warnings that he gives to teachers in the church or would-be teachers in the church are also a warning to us. And the other reason James says that not many of us should become teachers is because the tongue is such a powerful thing. Okay, he gives us a couple of illustrations. If you start in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. The tongue, in other words, is like a bit in the mouth of a horse. And though it's this really small thing, okay, it's just this tiny little piece of metal, it can direct and lead the whole horse, which are huge animals, by the way. I don't know if you knew this. I grew up a city kid. I didn't really have (laughs) much interaction with horses. I think I rode my first horse when I was like 13 or so. And it was terrifying, let me tell you. Uh, They're massive creatures, but this tiny piece of metal in their mouth can lead and direct them. You can actually keep a horse, this massive creature, on a path because of this small little piece of metal in their mouth. And I had this really funny image. If you, if you can imagine trying to lead a horse without a bit, I just imagine like you trying to grapple it and kind of hold on to it. And, and, and the, really the funny thing here is that you're much larger than a bit, right? But trying to wrestle with a horse to try to direct it in Uh, you know, some way is kind of a a foolish task. Uh, James says that the tongue is like a bit. It's this small thing, but it can lead this massive, massive creature. The tongue is powerful. But it's also like the rudder of a large ship, he says in verse 4. Even when the wind and waves beat against the side of the ship, the rudder is able to keep it on course. The captain is able to direct this massive vessel wherever he wills through the power of this very small rudder. So the tongue is powerful. It's this small thing, but its potency far outweighs its size. With it, nations rise and fall. If you just think about the Declaration of Independence, the the words contained there, or you think of Adolf Hitler's speeches, or you think of the preaching of guys like George Whitfield, great movements can arise through the tongue, through our words. Or if you think uh, also, for uh, for example, the words, uh, I now pronounce you man and wife. Those are potent words. Or you think of the words, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The tongue is powerful. It brings realities. It it brings with it uh, things into existence. And think about this, uh, to go a little bit further uh, here. We worship someone who calls himself the Word. Okay, we worship someone who calls himself the Word. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, 
Who is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God? Who is he? He is the Word of God, spoken by the tongue of God. Or we think about the Genesis account. How does the world come into existence? God speaks and galaxies are formed. God speaks and the sun gives off its heat and its light. Or Psalm 29 says, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. I don't think you could do that, by the way. I don't think you could do that. But it's because we are image bearers of God that our tongues are so powerful. Now, we can't create matter. We can't cause the deer to give birth through our language. But we do bring ideas into reality. Okay? We can communicate the abstract and make those things concrete. With our words, we propose marriage. We make plans to raise cathedrals. We make business deals and, and we baptize children and we encourage one another in the faith. Words are powerful. The tongue is powerful. And this power can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Now, when it's used for evil, James says that the tongue is a consuming fire, okay? It consumes great forests. It's a world of unrighteousness. Though it's a small member or body part, it stains the whole body. Now, the word for body there um, in, uh, what is that, verse, uh, where'd it go? Verse 6. That word for body there is actually the word uh, soma, which is often a term used to refer to the body of Christ. Okay, So James might, in fact, be saying that the tongue of one individual stains the whole body of Christ. You have one person out of line, and they're able to wreak havoc on the church. And this is clearly something that James is co actually concerned about because he addresses all the quarreling and fighting that breaks out in the church in chapter 4. I mean, if you think about this, how often do, uh, are you involved in conflict with someone over something that was said? Right, Probably about 99.99% <laughs> of all our conflicts, all of our struggles with other people, are because of our words or because of someone else's words. Words that rise out of wicked passions and desires, as James will say in chapter 4, and I think Pastor Toby is preaching on that next week. Uh, how many church splits happen because of an exchange of words? The tongue can defile a whole body of people. But soma, that word soma, can also refer to our individual bodies as well. Okay? Jesus says that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. That's Matthew 15, 11. The things you say can defile or corrupt your whole body. Your tongue, in other words, can send you to hell. Okay? Your tongue can send your whole body to hell. That's why Jesus tells us if your hand or your eye, or we could add to this, or your tongue, if any of these things cause you to sin, cut it off. Gouge it out. Remove it at all costs. It's better to go to heaven without an eye or a tongue or a hand than to hell uh, with all of those things. Your tongue can ruin your life. 
Okay, James says, your tongue can set on fire the entire course of your life. And we even use this description of the tongue as, uh, as a fire without really even thinking about it. When, when a relationship is broken, we often say that we burned that bridge. Okay, we even use this sort of phraseology in our common parlance. We bur- in other words, we burned our chance at restoration with that person. The words you say can cause you to lose your job. They can break apart your family. You can say things that, apart from the grace of God, will ruin your relationships for the rest of your life. The tongue is a dangerous thing. James says it's full of deadly poison. Okay? It's a dangerous thing. But like wine or food or marital intimacy, though the tongue is a dangerous thing, it is because of its great power, because of its great potency that it can be used for immense good and joy. Now James says that the tongue is a fire and he uses this image to show its destructive power. But scripture uses this idea of flaming tongues elsewhere. Anybody have any ideas? Pentecost. Thank you in the front row. At Pentecost, right, we see these tongues of fire. Uh, But there's a stark difference between the tongues of fire that James is talking about and the tongues of fire at Pentecost. James talks about tongues that are set set on fire by hell. He talks about in that verse 6. It's a fire, in other words, that rises from below. It's an earthly and demonic fire that seeks to destroy. But in Acts 2, we see tongues of fire that descend from above that descend and, and, and um, that descend and come upon the disciples from heaven. These tongues of fire are not then used for destruction, okay, to lay waste to everything in its path, but for declaring the mighty works of God. That's in verse 11. You see, it's not a question of whether or not your tongue will be on fire. Okay, your tongue is on fire. Your tongue has great power. But rather the question is, what kind of fire is it? And where does that fire come from? With your tongue, you will either be spreading the fire that's from the depths of hell that seeks to destroy everything in its path, or you will spread the Pentecostal fire from heaven. I know most of us are not Pentecostals, most of us are Presbyterians, but we can talk about Pentecostal fire. Okay, I like Pentecostal fire. Uh, So we want Pentecostal fire from heaven that magnifies the mighty works of God in Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the kind of fire that we want. We want Pentecostal fire. We want spirit-wrought fire. And we want to tame our tongues to employ this heavenly fire from above and not the hellish fire from below. But here's the thing, okay? This this isn't the, the heavenly Pentecostal fire. is not the nice or cuddly kind of fire, okay? As weird as that image is, compared to the mean or nasty fire that we talked about before. The fire from heaven is still a consuming 
fire. It's still a powerful fire. When the tongue, fall, tongue of fire falls on Peter, what does he say to the crowd? Okay, he doesn't just start spouting off the, the blessings and encouragements like we talked about before. He rebukes them. He tells them, you crucified the Messiah. He calls them out. He calls them to repent and be baptized. He tells them to turn from their sin and receive forgiveness. You see, the, the fire from heaven is still a consuming fire, but what it consumes is sin. It burns off the dross that the gold might be purified. It is a purifying flame, and it spreads just as easily. It's just as potent, okay? After Peter preaches, the text says 3,000 souls got saved. So why is it so important to learn to tame our tongues? Because the tongue is such a powerful thing. With it, we can either cause great harm, we can ruin our lives and the lives of others, or we can cause immense good. We can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our speech will either tear down or it will build up. We can either spread the fires from hell and so bring hell on earth to other people, or we can spread the fires from heaven that burn up the dross of sin and bring the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of God on heaven or on earth as it is in heaven. We want these Pentecostal tongues of fire. We want men and women trained to tame their tongues that we might set the world on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. That's what we're seeking to do. And so the question comes, how do you tame your tongue? Not only is the tongue a powerful and dangerous thing that can be used for great evil or for great good, it is impossible to tame, to answer the question. You cannot do it. If you look at verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no, I'm using the ESV, human being can tame the tongue, or the New King James has, no man can tame the tongue. And I think that's relevant, because I think James is actually hearkening back to the first man, okay, Adam. Okay? God gave man dominion over all the birds of the air and beasts of the field. And this is still the case even after the fall. But because of man's sin, he does not have dominion over his own tongue. It is impossible for him to tame it. James continues on in verse 11. Uh, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's impossible to tame the tongue. It's impossible to say the right thing at the right time for the glory of God and for building up the brethren if you're a salty pond trying to produce fresh water. If you're a fig tree trying to bear Grapes. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Taming your tongue isn't just about cleaning up your speech, therefore. It's much more than that. James is alluding to Jesus' words when he says that it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. 
which means that you don't just need to clean up your act. Okay, you don't just need to stop saying bad words. You need a new heart. Because if you have a heart full of all kinds of foul and putrid things, all that's going to come out is foul and putrid things. Trying to clean up your speech is like trying to put a filter over your mouth in order to strain out your vomit. That's a nasty image, I know. It doesn't work. It doesn't help anything. The bile is still going to come up one way or another. You need a new heart. You need to be cleansed. You need to be born again. And after you've received that new heart, you need to continue to root out the foul and putrid things that try to creep back in. You need to clean out the mold. You need to confess your sins to God and those whom you've sinned against. You need to pray and ask for the Spirit's help. You need to read the Bible. And particularly, as it relates to this issue, you need to read the book of Proverbs. And then you need to get to work. You need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. A former pastor of mine always says that self-control is God granting control over you back to you. Okay, before the grace of God came into your life, you're enslaved to sin. You're controlled by your sin. You cannot tame your tongue. Okay, but by the Spirit's work in your life, God is granting control over you back to you. The Spirit gives you control over your tongue. Taming your tongue is a kind of spirit-wrought self-control. And God wants you to be brought up into this kind of maturity. And so I've got a few uh, really practical moves uh, uh, in no real particular order that we can take to help us tame our tongues, to learn to say the right thing at the right time for the glory of God and for the building up of the brethren. And I'll finish up with these points of application. Number one, learn to shut your mouth. Learn to shut your mouth. Uh, This is perhaps the most important one of all. Proverbs is full of similar exhortations. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Okay? If you hold your tongue, you're likely to be thought, he seems kind of smart. Okay? Uh, Or chapter 13, 3. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Okay? If you're just babbling on all the time, you're going to lead yourself to destruction. You're going to prove that you're a fool is what you're going to do. Or chapter 17, 27 to 28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. There's that exhortation again. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Okay? Chapter 29, 20. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. 
Okay, so one of the most, one of the best ways that you can learn to tame your tongue and to grow in wisdom is to stop talking so much. Pretty basic, pretty simple. I hope we can grasp that one. This means that the content of your speech will be much less in quantity than the content of your mind. Learning to be wise in our speech and learning to tame our tongue is in great part about learning to shut our mouth when a thought enters your mind. And this is particularly true when your heart isn't in the right place. James addresses in verse 14, he says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. If you're angry or jealous or envious or you're overcome with selfish ambition, just don't talk to anybody. Okay, don't try to talk to your roommate. Don't try to call them out for leaving the dishes in the sink. Don't try to have a conversation with your mom. Instead, hold your tongue. Confess it to your God. Ask God to first change you before approaching others. Remember, the tongue is a fire. And if you're angry, you're going to set something on fire with the fire that is from hell. And you're going to regret it. Now, this doesn't mean that you become passive or weak-willed. It means that when you speak, okay, you're holding back all of these thoughts, and when you actually go to speak, you are to direct your speech toward the glory of God and toward the building up of the brethren. It is speaking the truth in love. Now, love can be an encouraging word. It can be a friendly rebuke or correction. And it can even be a prophetic judgment. Like I said, taming your tongue involves speaking according to the proper occasion, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. And sometimes the occasion calls for hard words. But these all need to arise from a heart that is satisfied in God and that loves its neighbor. It's not for your sake that you are to say the hard thing, but for the sake of your neighbor, for the sake of your brother. The second point, don't seek to teach others before you are ready. Okay? As I said before, this whole passage is first directed to teachers or would-be teachers. Now, Paul says in 1 Timothy that a man who desires to be an elder in the church desires a good thing. But that is very different from assuming the role of a teacher, especially a teacher among your peers. It's very different from uh, trying to posture yourself as this uh, intellectual person, especially in a, in a school like NSA. We value in the intellect. We value quality learning, and it's easy to become puffed up, Paul says, with our knowledge. When you try to do this, when you try to posture yourself in this way, you're going to show yourself to be a fool, okay? So don't try to be a teacher too early. Wait for the Spirit to fall, 
And that's what you're here, that's, this is what you're here to do. This is what you're here to, to train for. You're learning to tame your tongue. That's what the liberal arts are all about. It's about learning to tame your tongue. It's about learning to say the right thing at the right time for the glory of God and for the building up of the church. That's why you're here. James says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? 